It's according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have put in obedience to the truth, since you have in obedience, pardon to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then. Is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very stone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, for our time tonight, we'll be looking primarily at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. But leading up to that, by way of introduction, the reading of the passage is most helpful for us, seeing what Peter has just said, long for him, long for Jesus in his word and taste and see that he is good and that his kindness is for you. And not only long for him, but put that longing into action. It's not a passive longing, but come to him, verse 4. Come to him who is living And come to him who has all authority to grant life to our souls, a life that will endure and last forever. And believe him, believe in him, though he is rejected on every front, especially in our day today. He is rejected everywhere we look, but come to him and believe him. Why? 
Peter says, because he is choice of God and he is precious for us. His preciousness is amazing. But then the second half of verse seven. But for those who don't believe the stone, this Christ became the stone that they rejected. Thus, he became a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Why do they stumble? Because they're disobedient. If Christ is not precious to you, if you do not long for him in this way, if you are not coming to him constantly in this manner that Peter is talking about, if you are rejecting him and not standing on him, but stumbling over him because of disobedience to him and the words and his word, then we must not notice again in verse eight this phrase to this doom. They were also appointed. If your hearts are cold towards Christ and you are being disobedient, you must not use this phrase in verse eight to solidify or justify your rebellion. You must, however, cast yourself on Jesus and see his preciousness and see that it is for you and prove that he is precious and that it is real for you. It is a dangerous thing for us to cling to a phrase like this and in our coldness towards Christ to make some assumption in our pride that God's mercy is not sufficient for us or to contemplate some blasphemous idea that it's God's fault that we aren't obeying him and loving him and coming to him and drinking from his well. Your misery and all of those misery that will be eternal if you do not repent is not a result of some final decree of God, but it is a result of pride and wickedness in your own heart. You will not be damned for anything that God has done or anything that God has not done, but you will be damned for your sin. So flee to him to God in Jesus and see what hope and joy and love and mercy. See what Christ there is there, not only as a rock, as a sure foundation, but also one of great refuge. The psalmist said it this way. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those zero of those who take refuge in him will ever be condemned. We ought to prove this. With our life, prove that none of those will be condemned. And how do we do it? By taking refuge in him and hoping in him. And when you do, you will see that verse nine is an amazing reality that you are a chosen race, a chosen generation and a royal priesthood and a holy nation of people for God's own possession. And for those of you who have, you know how true it is, how amazing it is. How incredible the privileges are that are ours in the gospel to be chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Now, here at this point and considering it from this angle, we must not imagine that because, like we said, the unrepentant are damned due to their sin and their rebellion. We must not assume that these privileges that come to us in the gospel 
come based on some inherent goodness in us or some lack of sin in us, but that any good we have in us was received from God and these qualities that may be considered good are the result and effect and not the cause of God's kindness toward us. The book of Deuteronomy is very helpful. Listen as I read from Deuteronomy 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affections to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples, as it is this day. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. He does not show partiality. There's, he doesn't see good in one and decide to love them or not see good in another and decide to damn them. You've had wonderful illustrations of this in the past weeks from the pulpit here. Consider Abraham, an idolater. He and his whole family were idolaters when God initially came and called him by his remarkable grace. Abraham did not have any more claim to the blessings that were promised to him than any other person in the world. But God came to Abraham and Isaac, not Ishmael, was appointed to be the channel of these blessings that were promised to Abraham long before he was ever born into the world. And then Jacob. I know you heard about Jacob even this week. I hope you don't think there was anything good in Jacob that caused God to Love him. He was the younger brother as well, and he was chosen before Esau, even while they were in the womb, the scriptures tells us, before either one of them had done any good or evil. Why were they chosen? Was it for their superior goodness or their superb qualities? Either seen or foreseen in the future. It couldn't have been for anything seen. They were unborn, some of them, at the time of the promised blessing. And it couldn't have been for anything foreseen because a verse that I left out of the, cha- of the passage in Deuteronomy 10 says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. They were a stiff-necked people and they proved a rebellious and stiff-necked people from the very beginning all the way into the end of their life. So it couldn't have been for anything seen or foreseen that God chose to bestow, to bestow his love Upon them, We can't trace their being chosen by God to anything in them but to God alone and his marvelous electing love. Now, what's the benefit of that for us, that God chose Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, not based on anything good in them? Here's the benefit for us. Peter is writing, saying, look at these Old Testament examples of what God has done in the past. Malachi tells us. This God who chose Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to bestow his love upon them is a God that never changes. Therefore, all the sons of Jacob, that is us here now, are not consumed. We will not be consumed. We will not be condemned if we are in Christ and sons of Jacob in every age from then until now. God has continued to do the same. He has continued redeeming according to the election of his grace Alone, Paul wrote this to Timothy and said the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ 
from all of eternity. So Peter here in verse 9 uses these four Old Testament truths to help bring this reality home to us, to bring it all the way to the application of our souls. And what Peter is saying to us is look at God and consider his prior dealings with his people. Look how he has lavished his love on his people. One example for of this, again, from the book of Deuteronomy, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Continuing in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Peter is saying here, do you feel insignificant? The original audience that Peter is writing to here, they're scattered abroad. They aren't with their family. They're scattered out and they're suffering. And he's saying here to us, do you feel insignificant? Are you in bondage to sin or self? Are you being oppressed by Anything is your life situation, a wilderness like it was of these people that God was talking to. Then here, know therefore, verse nine, Deuteronomy seven, that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. The Jews were a special people to the Lord, their God, and they received immense blessings as a result. Consider what they received with me. They were rescued from an incredibly oppressive bondage by God. They were instructed and guided by the voice of revelation by God. They were sustained by bread from heaven, water from a rock, even quail as meat by God. They were brought into a very near relationship to God himself by God. And they were honored with access to him based on his divine terms. They were distinguished above all the peoples on all of the face of the earth. And notice, though, that it's this truth, this reality that Peter is applying to us, to believers. You who are in Christ, who are chosen of God and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. You are being rescued from the tyranny of sin. And from the snare of Satan day by day by God. And you are being instructed and taught as believers right now by the word and by the spirit of God. You are being sustained day by day on measures of his grace. And you have been brought into the family of God as sons and daughters of the most high. And you are granted in Christ the most intimate communion based on the work of Christ and now the work of the Spirit in our lives, you are, we receive the most intimate communion with God. We as believers, just like the Jews of old, have more in God than any and all peoples on the planet. Not more in God like God is our possession, but we have more as people, as individuals, and as a church. We have more because we are in God, we mentioned that the Jews owed everything that they received to that distinguishing, kind grace of God. 
The passage in Deuteronomy makes it clear to us. It's not because of your great numbers. Actually, you were the fewest of all peoples. It wasn't because of your goodness. You were the most rebellious and stiff-necked of all peoples. But he loved them. Though they were few, he loved them. Though they were rebellious, he loved them. Though they were stiff-necked, he loved them. Why? Deuteronomy 7, 8. Because the Lord loved them. And in time, he testified that love to him. Everything is flowing out of the love of God. Everything that we have in God flows out of his love. And he voluntarily engaged to display this love to us, primarily in the person and work of his son. And we cannot right now trace anything that we have in Christ to any other source. The gospel coming to us has no respect to anything good in us. Nothing past, nothing present, nothing future. Think about it. Nothing past. Which of us have not in the past been inconceivably vile and wicked? Or the present. Which of us who have been redeemed were not in the very midst of our sinful career when God came and plucked us as brands from the burning? Or not even in the future, what good will we ever have that will not be given to us by Christ? There will be good evident in us. I am not saying that. After all, Paul did write to the church at Ephesus and and say he has chosen you so that you will be holy. Not because we were holy, not because he foresaw that we would become holy, but he chose us because he loved us and he loves us still. How can we not admire the great condescension of God coming in the person of Jesus, stooping to notice our fallen race? There is example after example of God stooping to bestow his kindness on his people in order not to use the most obvious in the incarnation of Christ will back all the way up to Exodus 19 where the scriptures say in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai when they set out from Rephidim they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness and there Israel camped in front of the mountain Moses went up to God And the Lord God called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. This is an incredible example of God stooping. And it's even a more amazing example to see that it's God renewing his acts of kindness with his people, followed by his people giving repeated instances of ingratitude. And then to behold him entering into covenant with this people, the most rebellious of all of his creatures, binding himself by an oath and by promises. To load them (coughs) with the richest of benefits in the gospel. How can we not be lost in wonder at a God like this? Three months had lapsed. The first verse in Exodus 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out. 
Only three months had lapsed since this great liberation from the bondage. And the people of God have proven their rebellion and their stiff-necked tendencies. But God, instead of casting them off, proposes a covenant. And he commits himself to, You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Consider the mercy of God here. He had inflicted the heaviest judgments on the Egyptians, but he brought his people out safe and triumphantly to Mount Sinai, to that exact mountain where he had long before said in Exodus 3 that they would meet and they would worship him. And he allowed them to see this. And he again displayed his kindness so clearly to them. They could not question the kindness of God to them. And Peter writes here for us out of this same vein that we ought not question the kindness and the love of God towards us. Rather, we ought to be astonished at the mercy of God toward us, namely in Jesus Christ. Because of mercy, we believe. Because of mercy, we are chosen. Because of mercy, we are loved. Because of love, God is merciful to us. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy, that was us, that is us apart from Christ, but now you are a people. He doesn't even say that. You aren't just a people, but you are the people belonging to the Most High God who created everything. And you haven't just received a token of mercy, but you have been given mercy like a flood that will never cease. It continues pouring out in your life. We never get anything from God except mercy, mercy, mercy. As a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But it doesn't stop there. There are ongoing results. He chooses us because of love. He loved us because of love. And he chose us so that. Here's the why. Not the why from God. We saw God's why. Why does God love us? Just because he loves us, because he's God. But here's the why for us. So that, verse 9, we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is why God loves us. So that we may proclaim his excellencies. So that we may proclaim his mercy. So that we may proclaim his love. So that we may proclaim that he is precious and that he is a cornerstone and that he is a refuge. Being a chosen generation or being loved by God is of much less consequence if we consider it outside of this clearly intended context that Peter gives for us. But if we consider it, even in a small degree in this context that Peter gives us, it's very helpful for us in evaluating our own hearts because it makes us clear, it makes it clear to us who Christ is for us, whether he is that precious cornerstone in verse 6, or that offensive stumbling stone in verse 8. And for us to try to come up with it and with our own darkened understanding and fuzzy mind is very difficult. So Peter offers this help. Glance at it from this angle, from the angle of your life. And are you with your life, not merely your lips, but with your life, are you proclaiming the excellencies of him who loved you and called you with this holy calling and has placed his stamp on you and given you himself 
in the person of his son and in his spirit. Chosen by God and chosen to be a royal priesthood. For the people of old that Peter is referring to here, and access to God, offering him sacrifices of praise and prayer, that's all they had. But for us, it's royalty mixed with this priesthood. Unheard of in the Old Testament. The prophet Zechariah prophesied that it would, those two offices would be combined in Jesus. And now us serving under Jesus. We read about that in Revelation 5 when they're worshiping around the throne. He has made us priests and kings to serve and worship him. We've been given dominion as kings over sin and self and Satan in Christ. As kings reigning under the king of all kings, given the power in Christ to reign over our hearts. Guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. And this access that has been granted us as priests in Jesus Christ, as our great high priest who has suffered like us and who has made the path and trod it for us all the way into the Holy of Holies, and cleared that path away once for all for us to constantly be on that path by the tearing of his flesh. He opened up that path into the Holy of Holies to the throne room of God himself that we might worship him there. And he has made us a holy nation, not Israel, not the United States, not any other nation in the world, but the nation of God, the people of God, the kingdom of God, namely right here for us, the church. He has made us the church. And following this choosing based on his love and making us royal priests to serve him and by justification declaring us as holy and putting us on a path to be holy because he is holy, God now has an interest in his people. We are his possession. We belong to him. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price, the price of Jesus' own blood. And now he will not. He cannot disown us. Peter says here for us, consider what you are. Go back and look again at God. Gaze at him and see what he's given you in his son. And Peter offers the great help of not just seeing what you are, but contrast it with what you used to be. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? Because he loves you. Know why? So that you could proclaim that love with your life to everyone who comes in contact with you. And again, the help from Peter. Look at the before and after. Once you hadn't received mercy... But now God has given you mercy. He's proven himself kind to you. Once you were not a people, you were a nobody. But now you are a people belonging to God. You are the church. There are immeasurable blessings in Christ that are promised for us in the gospel. Let's not sit by idly and allow this gospel to be preached and proclaimed without submitting ourselves to it and responding to it in repentance and faith. We see in the scriptures very clearly the path that Jesus is pleased to travel. Let's both individually and as families and as a church in broken, contrite humility drag ourselves to the road that Christ is pleased 
to travel and prove to our doubting, unbelieving, cold hearts that he is altogether lovely, that he is a precious cornerstone, that he is a rock and that he is a refuge and prove that what the psalmist said is true, that none of those who take refuge in him will ever be condemned. Let me close by reading a hymn, then I'll pray and we'll close singing together. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. God, make this love a reality to our hearts. Make it real to our souls. God, give us grace to hope in you and to see you and all that you are, especially for us in Jesus. God, show us again day by day. Manifest it before our eyes. Put yourself on display in your son in all of your glory before us and convince us, God, again and again that you love us, that we might respond with loving you and worshiping you and proclaiming your excellencies to our neighbors and to the nations for now and all time in Christ's name. Amen. We'll read from First Peter. We'll begin in chapter 1, verse 17. If you'll just follow along with me from there. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges,